Hi, friends, and welcome to All Things Relatable, a place where stories are shared. It's hard to put a value on a story because the lasting effects it can have are often priceless. An individual's story has the potential to impact our lives in tremendous ways. My hope for you in joining me today is that this episode resonates with you and that you leave enlightened, ignited, and inspired because it only takes one moment to spark a change and leave an everlasting effect. My next guest, Susie, is very passionate about the topic of negative positivity. As someone who has had to navigate life with chronic illness since the age of nine and has lived through many more health issues along the way, the cliches that are tossed around like, it could be worse, or look on the bright side, don't sit well with her. Although she says living with chronic illness is hard, she's also living out her passions. Susie's taken her health journey and used it to pour into a book she's written called Help the Doctor Help You, 30 Secrets and Tips for Self-Advocacy to Get the Best from Your Appointments. And she also has a memoir coming out soon about living with chronic illness. Susie, how are you? I'm so happy to have you on the podcast today. Oh, thanks. I'm great. I'm happy to be here as well, Candice. Yay. Okay. So I can't wait to dive in. So I'm thinking we'll go right back to life right before your diagnosis at nine. So how is your health leading up to that point? Well, um, I was a pretty healthy kid, actually. Um, Grew up on a farm and I was of a a healthy, you know, slim weight. And um, we ate farm to table. And I don't, I'm sure I had, you know, colds and flus like the next kid but um I don't remember anything anything really standing out before the age of nine and perhaps that's you know flawed adult memory talking but um but nothing has ever been spoken about that anything major happened before then so okay so then how did that diagnosis come about what were the symptoms or what prompted um I don't know, did your family like dive into it and go to the doctor? Was it serious or was it something subtle, subtle, different symptoms that came up to get to your diagnosis? Right. Well, it started out uh, perhaps a little bit subtly, although quickly became um, more urgent. Over a two week span of time, I, as a nine year old child, lost about 13 pounds and we thought I had the flu. So I just remember laying on the couch and being fed, you know, seven up and orange juice and whatever to keep me going and uh, running to the loo often. Um, (laughs) I'm Canadian now living in England, and they have changed my language a little bit. So that would be the washroom, perhaps in your part of the world. But um, anyway, so yes, I remember many trips to the washroom. And um, finally, my mom realized, whoa, like you are skinny, and not getting better. And this doesn't look like the flu so much anymore. So she took me to the GP. And uh, thank goodness, because he said, go straight to the children's hospital. Um, And that was two hours away. And he said, I'll call ahead. It'll be faster if you go without an ambulance, just get there as quickly as you can. And I remember in the car ride there, I was in and out of consciousness at that point. And they put me after kind of reviving me when I got there put me straight into the ICU for a few days. So it was um, nearly death for me. They said I would have died if I'd gone to sleep that night. So thankfully, um, you know, the seriousness of it became recognized when it did. Wow. Okay. So um, when you got to the children's hospital, when then did they figure out what illness you actually had? Well, the GP figured it out right away when we saw him. So he said- He said, you know, Mrs. Bird, your daughter has type 1 diabetes. You need to get to the hospital immediately. So I don't know. Did he do a finger poke to test my blood sugar and know that it was so sky high? Perhaps he might have. He would have had that equipment in his office. Maybe he just knew from the symptoms that we described, but he knew right away. So back then we didn't have the same educational materials and advertisements on the the TV saying, you know, if you're thirsty all the time or if you need to pee a lot, then you might have diabetes go get checked out so we didn't recognize those symptoms but he did so they knew as I arrived what they were dealing with okay and so does somebody that has diabetes are they born with that 
Mm. Or is it something that develops as they grow up? The best theory out there that they have currently is that it's an autoimmune disease. And for whatever reason, the body attacks not only the viruses that are we're fighting off, but also itself. So um, some, some babies can have it right away very, very early on, but it's not something that usually you're born with, but that happens after as a result of your body fighting off something else. And then it attacks the pancreas and your pancreas stops producing insulin. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So then how did life change after that diagnosis? Mm -hmm. I know it's one that, you know, I've taught a little guy who had type one diabetes and I've been in the company of other people who have, and it is like monitoring it 24 seven. So how did life change with that diagnosis for you and your family? And especially back when you were younger, where was the technology probably wasn't up to um, speed in the medical advances as they are today with some of the different systems to monitor. So what was that like, that shift in your, in your lifestyle like? Well, first of all, thank you for recognizing that it is a 24-7 job. And um, I would say that it is the number one illness that is that way. Most people um, have, you know, they go to the hospital and they get a treatment. Even cancer patients will go get their chemo, then they come home. And they've got, you know, the effects of all of that that they've got to deal with. But management isn't necessarily their job all the time. And so for us with um, type 1 diabetes and type 2 to some degree as well, we are managing it all the time. Now, when I was nine, I remember early days, it was it was almost a novelty because I was the I was the kid that came back to my tiny school and had just almost died at the hospital and I was taking needles and they were seeing me test my blood sugar and I, I was kind of this like hero in their eyes and and so I soaked that up pretty good. Um, but fast forward a couple of weeks and that wore off very quickly and then it had to become a way of life. And you're right, the technology back then was not what it is today. Back then I started with, oh, recollection was injections two or three times a day, which then um, as I grew older and my control was not good, I ended up on like, oh, 12, 15 sometimes to, to, um, correct for, for highs and for what I was eating and whatever. And I remember that the first blood glucose monitor that I, uh, machine meter that I had was the size of a, a novel. <laughs> now, you know, they, they, you know, fit into your handbag with not much trouble, but I also today have an insulin pump, which radicalized my treatment and I still don't have ultimate control for some reason. My diabetes, um, experience has not been an, a smooth journey. And um, for many years, I didn't treat my body well, and I made silly choices when it came to the diabetes. And I think it was my way of rebelling and not I, I didn't hide it. I wasn't ashamed to have it. But I didn't want to deal with it. So I just ate what I wanted. And I didn't, I didn't, you know, dose the insulin when I should have. And then things started to go wrong, which I'm sure we'll get into. But at that point, I made some radical changes, but still I struggle with, with tight control. And I'm, I, you know, I've learned so much over the years and now coaches on Instagram and everything have, have made a world of difference with information as well, but I'm still a tricky case. My insulin pump, like I said, was probably the best decision I ever made for the diabetes. So I'm so thankful for that. And it's a better system for my body as far as, um, just the way that the insulin is entering your body and the frequency is just, a, it's just works so much better for me. So I actually have um, in the past gone on the speaking circuit to, you know, passionately talk about life with diabetes and how pump therapy has made a difference for me. And so that just shows you the difference that it has made for me. But yeah, I mean, it's like you said, it's 24 seven, you can't ever take a holiday from the diabetes. Uh, even whilst on a holiday in the sunshine, it is there with you. And every decision you make um, can impact it. It's not just the food you put in your mouth, but the activities you do, you know, whether you're fighting off a virus, the type of food you're having, are you eating fats? Are you eating proteins? Are you eating fiber? It all 
it all, you know, factors in. So it it's a big job for sure. Right. So, so what do you do? Are there any strategies that you learned along the way to kind of cope with that? I don't even know if it would be overwhelm or exhaustion because there's so many mm-hmm. decisions that you have to make in a day um, based around that consideration. So is there anything that you've tips that you've learned though, along the way that have helped? So it's, I don't know, I guess it's in the forefront of your brain, but not like, you know, you can focus in and do other things. Mm. Well, I love that you asked this question and my answer might not be what, what you're thinking it's going to be, but the number one thing that has helped me with the overwhelm of this disease is letting myself hit the wall. So about every, I would say on average, every six months or so, uh, also it usually coincides with when other health challenges are piling up for me and lots of doctor's appointments and and everything. But I would say because you know, when things pile up and I just feel like my alarms are going off all the time for the, for the diabetes and whatever I have to, when I hit the wall, I have to recognize that that's okay. And I give myself a day, I give myself a day to go for a walk and scream as loud as I need to scream. I give myself a day to take a nap and just curl under that duvet and block out the world to, to cry I warn my husband, I'm like, this is the day. So please forgive me. Please, you know, bear with me. I'll have a conversation with a friend and say, this is the day. Can I just vent a bit? It looks different each time um, as as to what I need, but I the the feelings of hitting the wall are are all the same. And so certainly that's kind of the number one one thing. Secondly, I think that. I have gained an acceptance that this is a part of me. And so um, I I still can enjoy life amidst the diabetes and I can still live my dreams. And you'll, I'm sure, hear about some of that. Um, and sometimes it is, you know, um, a matter of, of pushing it back a little bit uh, in, in the mind while still recognizing that I can't, I can't ignore it. And I have to do what I have to do. I have to still be mindful of treating those blood sugars or eating, eating food when I, you know, need to, to, to have the energy that I need or not go lower or whatever. But I, I do feel like uh, embracing what's going on in my body. I think it's different than defeat, although sometimes I do feel that, but I think embracing it has been key to letting me, you know, see all the other joys that I have. Mm. And do you think because you'd have to be so in tune with your body that you are in tune with like your intuition or if, you know, has that been something that um, you find because you're so, you have to be so in tune with what's going on inside. Has that been something that maybe you've been able to tap into maybe more than the average person would? Yeah. I don't know if it's a chicken or an egg (laughs) in the sense that I am a highly intuitive person and a bit of an empath in the sense of, you know, I'm the person in the room going, whoa, those two are having stress with each other and they're not saying it out loud, but I know something's going on or I can notice that somebody's hurting when other people don't notice. Um, and yes, that translates also to recognizing what's happening in my own body. Now, is that personality? Is Was I born with that? Is that life circumstances? Have I had to become that way so that I can manage what's going on in my body? Has it been, you know, um, dealing with other life circumstances uh, that has, has, you know, trained me to listen to my intuition. It's hard to know where it comes from, but I do know that that is me. And so certainly um, I actually had a doctor say to me once, um, I'm so glad you know your body so well, because it helps me do my job. And uh, I, I, I think it's sometimes the practical stuff of knowing your body and just, you know, documenting patterns or, you know, paying attention to what's going on. But it is also an intuitive thing that like, oh, hang on a minute. You know, my meter says that, uh, or my my continuous glucose monitor says that I'm going low, but I don't feel any of the symptoms. Am I going to treat that without doing a blood sugar check or waiting a bit? Um, or should I jump on, you know, that low treatment? And, and often, 
that intuitive feeling of like, hang on, that's not accurate is right. So yeah, that's the long answer to your short question. No, I love it. That's so good. Mm -hmm. And so in the intro, I talked about, you know, at nine, you were being diagnosed with type one diabetes, but then you navigated illnesses as you grew up. So um, what were some of the things that you were um, faced with health-wise as you were growing up? Yeah, well, some of them are connected to the diabetes um, and some of them are totally random. And so I, in my 20, well, in my teens, um, they were suspicious of kidney disease. So I had a kidney biopsy and they said, yes, there is kidney disease there. And that's when I was threatened with doctors telling me, if you don't get good control of your blood sugars, you'll be dead by 25, which I don't um, support <laughs> that tactic of fear. But uh, I will say that that it's kind of stuck with me in the sense of feeling like now that I'm, you know, more middle-aged, I'm, I can get, get sucked into feeling like I'm living on borrowed time. Anyway, that's another discussion for another day. The good news is my kidneys are holding pretty strong, but in my early twenties, oh, well, actually on my honeymoon, um, morning, and I don't know how graphic your audience wants me to get here, Candice, but, um, I'll try to be sensitive to, to some of my, my stories, but I woke up basically with a soaking wet shirt because I was lactating and I had not just had a baby, nor was I pregnant. And so we knew something was up and I, you know, went to the doctor. It turns out I had a tumor on my pituitary gland, which is just at the front of your brain. And I needed brain surgery to remove it. And, um, I mean, I'm thankful that it took care of the problem, although there's always the threat that that tumor could grow back, which they didn't tell me until after the surgery, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't a good time. We'll just say, and as a side note, a freebie for your, your, uh, business folks out there, I don't recommend phoning the manager when they're off from work at home, recovering from brain surgery and asking them for a job. Spoiler, she didn't get the job. Anyway, um, <laughs> moving on through my health history, I then developed fibromyalgia at some point and in my early 30s, retinopathy. And I, I had gone to my ophthalmologist for a routine appointment. I went once a year for checkups. And um, he had always said before this point in time that what I see is normal for someone who's had type, type 1 diabetes as long as you had. And I just heard normal. It's normal all those years and then this day I walked in and he said, oh, you have stage four retinopathy. And for those of you who are like me and kind of get confused by the number system when it comes to stages, stage four is the worst. So he said, we need to immediately do laser surgery um, on your retinas, multiple rounds, uh, but you still could have bleeds, internal bleeds in your eyes, which would cause blindness. And if that's the case, you'll need surgery, which did happen um, separately from my eyes, but within a couple months of each other. And the first surgery I had on my left eye, let's just say if there is a twilight zone, I I felt like I was in it. I remember lying on the, the bed and because your eyes in REM sleep move, they can't put you under for eyeball surgery. They have to keep you awake. So they freeze it. And so I'm awake for it. And next thing you know, there is a Hoover in my eyeball and I can see it. I can see it going back and forth, you know, sucking up the bleed. And I, I don't even know, I, I, there's no words for the bizarreness of that experience. So afterwards I said to him, um, Hey doc, like I could see it. Like, was that supposed to happen? He said, Oh no, it can happen sometimes, but you should have told me. And I'm like, you've got a vacuum cleaner in my eyeball. I'm probably not going to just start a conversation up with you. So anyways, we had a chuckle. Then fast forward a couple of months and my right eye, same thing, bleed inside, blocked my sight, had it again. And this time I didn't see anything, but the freezing didn't work in the sense of pain. So I felt it all. And so I still go back and forth as to which would be worse if I had to do it again. And again, that is something that could be needed. Um, so it's, it's a kind of, uh, 
just a little threat running in the background of that retinopathy could become active again. But I'm very thankful that those surgeries regained my sight and I can see pretty good. I'm driving. Uh, it's a little bit harder to read and my peripheral is not great, but in general, in general, I do pretty good. Um, and then I developed gastroparesis, which is autonomic neuropathy, and that's from the diabetes. And that's when your organs that are supposed to do their job on their own, such as your lungs, for example, um, don't, they are affected by the nerve damage. And so my whole gastrointestinal system slowed down almost to a halt. And so I needed a gastric pacer implanted into my belly wall and wires wormed up through my abdomen and attached to the bottom of my stomach. And that was actually a disaster and caused awful debilitating pain for two years of my life. And again, I couldn't eat every time I ate, I was just doubled over. And so I, you know, it would take me a, a day at the beginning to get through a pot of yogurt. And so we had to remove that. So um, I still deal with gastrointestinal issues, but thankfully I think with the food choices um, and I think the nature of it is it ebbs and flows. I'm doing better in that department. So it's not life-threatening at this point, like it was back then. So again, thankful. Um, I developed ME, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome. And that has been about a seven-year um, time span that I still struggle with today. My legs will stop working on, on some days. Um, and the fatigue is overwhelming, but there was a point when I was actually bedridden to the point that I couldn't, I didn't have the strength to push the buttons on my insulin pump. And my husband had to feed me. He had to bathe me. He had to, he would carry me outside to our back garden and, um, put me in a recliner, um, lawn garden chair, uh, loaded with blankets. It was the middle of summer, but I was just freezing and I would just lay there for hours just listening to the birds and um but i was in agony and so debilitated at that point and and that's uh when i went blind life got really dark pardon the pun um but at this point in time it it became dark in a different way in that i didn't know if this was my life if i could go on if i could if I could do this any longer, um, because the pain was so excruciating and I just was so, uh, you know, disabled, uh, thankfully again, um, the nature of that disease ebbs and flows and I didn't give up and I'm still here and I have limitations, but I do pretty good. So, um, I just have to, you know, pace myself well and, whatever. And then, you know, I've got migraines, I've had surgeries that other people get, and I could sit here for, for five hours and tell you my medical history, but that just kind of gives you an idea of, um, what life has looked like up until this point and what it still looks like today. Wow. Okay. Like that, that's a lot. And so <laughs> in the intro, when I talked about negative positivity, I need some help mm -hmm. on this. Cause I, I can just picture the people who are surrounding you saying like, okay, like you got that, you know, you've been through so much that just trying to like cheer you on and look on the bright side and keep going. And like, you know, maybe doing it thinking that it's helpful, but as mm. somebody who's, you know, deals with chronic illness and has been going through all of these health issues along the way, I want to know from your perspective, like, what is it like when people are saying these things that they, they think are helping? Cause I'm sure I've done it. And what could we then instead shift to um, that would land a lot better? Well, first of all, I'll say I've done it too, Candace. Uh, we're in it together here. It's a learning curve. And it's not until you're on the receiving end of some of these cliches that you realize the, um, the harm that they can do. And I label them negative positivity, you know, we see the hashtag toxic positivity ar ar around a lot these days. And I think we're talking about the same thing. But I think toxic is such a strong word, because like you said, most people mean well, it's not mean spirited, they're just trying to say something to make you feel better, or they're trying to say something to um, because they don't know what to say to kind of wrap up the conversation, or 
perhaps they're not comfortable with their own emotions. And so then to deal with yours is a challenge. But those things are still not, uh, you know, mean spirited. They're just, uh, you know, sadly, reasons for unhelpful behavior. But, you know, a lot of the cliches that that get thrown around in in that world of either chronic illness or you know people grieving or whatever it might be are things like just stay positive look on the bright side or everything happens for a reason um or it could be worse right and i mean i have a long list of those phrases that i think that we could reframe and i have to say that i'm passionate about giving reframes because i think it's one thing to say don't say to me everything happens for a reason. But to not say why or to give you something to say instead kind of isn't fair. Um, because it is confusing when you haven't been on the receiving end. And so I I just think that we need to be we need to be giving alternatives and changing our language to other things. And, you know, everything happens for a reason. Well, let's break that down. Does it? I don't know, maybe. If it does happen for a reason, might we not find out what that reason is and even if it does happen for a reason it really is hard in the moment it's so hard stay positive well first of all it feels a little bossy when we're already kicked and down it feels like you're giving us one more thing to do that we're not able to achieve because we're hurting so badly so i get that they're just trying to hand us some positivity. But by saying just do it, just stay positive isn't helpful because we are exhausted. We are broken. We are trying. But but at that moment, we just have to feel our feelings, which I think is is actually really key, key to, to healing. Uh, recognizing and embracing our feelings um, helps us, in my mind, kind of digest them and then release them again. I think that's, you know, I think that's a healthy, healthier way than to try to ignore them or just um, compartmentalize to the point of, of like, I mean, our body knows we're feeling them. And to try to ignore that, it just, I don't know, maybe some people can achieve that in a healthy way, but it certainly doesn't work for me. It could always be worse. Well, yeah. It sure can. You know what? I can look around the world and go, yeah, like earthquakes killing hundreds of thousands of people. I have a nephew that almost died from brain cancer. It can always be worse. You know what? It's been worse for me. That eyeball surgery, going blind, that was worse than the day that I got my toenails removed. But guess what? The day that I got my toenails removed was hard. So by saying it could always be worse diminishes what we are feeling in the moment it tells us it's not valid that you're feeling this way because someone else is suffering in their mind greater and i just think everybody's hard is their hard and so you know everything happens for a reason let's change that to i don't understand why this is happening i don't understand why it's so hard or instead of stay positive positive how about something like i'm really going to hope for for better for you i'm going to do the work of that i'm going to i'm going to you know really believe that things can get better and hold your hand until they do um so i th i think you know we need to stop and think before we speak and ultimately if you don't know what to say say that because the phrase I don't know what to say, speaks volumes. It speaks to the fact that this is an impossible situation. This is so hard, there are no words. And hey, maybe not everybody likes a hug, but I think a lot of us when we're hurting, you know, a hug goes a long way. So, you know, those are a few examples. And I just think if they're a cliche that, that you've heard, um, maybe give it a think. Um, or if you've, if, if you find yourself saying, saying it, uh, and you realize while you're saying it, it's okay to go, oh, you know what, this isn't going to be helpful. Let me, let me like reframe that. Or if you've said it, 
but it was recent, you can say, you know what, like, I thought about that. And I bet that wasn't helpful. And I'm, I'm sorry. And if it's been a long time ago, don't worry about it. I think we as the receivers also have a responsibility to realize that Sometimes that statement is more about the person giving it and not about us. And we shouldn't be so ultra sensitive that somebody trying to say something positive. Um, I don't think we should, you know, twist it into such a negative thing. I just think in, in society, we should be having these conversations about what's helpful and what's not. Wow. Like I'm soapbox step down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I am speechless. I'm like, I don't even know. I just feel like those simple reframes, just when you compared the two, I'm mm. like, that's everything. And yeah, me being in that situation before when it's like, you don't really have words, you don't know what to say, you don't know how to reframe it. Then you just stumble over your words and say things that you're like, it just comes out and it's like out of like, I don't know, anxiousness or like, you don't mm. want to say the wrong thing, but you care so much. And like, like th those are doable. Those are simple. Those are so much more. Um, I don't even know the word, like not even heartfelt or like, I just, it feels like so more loving those simple reframes and that, I don't know. I just... Well, and I think the goal is, you know, what we want when we're hurting is we want someone to see us and, and recognize that we're hurting. That's all. Mm -hmm. We know you can't fix our problem. Mm -hmm. We just want to feel understood that this is hard. And if you're in a, if you know the person well enough to offer to be in it with them, that's fantastic. Sometimes we don't know a person very well and they've told you something and you are just, you know, trying to, trying to stay on the positive side and then you carry on and you're not going to be the one that's going to you know, buy them flowers or sit with them at the doctor's office and hold their hand. That's okay. You don't have to be that. Um, but, but to just use words that speak to what that person might be going through, that it's hard. And I see you. That's, that's all we're asking for. It means so much. It's, it seems so simple, but it, it, ah, it, it's huge. It's huge. Mm -hmm. I could feel it when you were saying that I could totally feel mm -hmm. it. And like you said, yeah, I loved how you mentioned before too, how, when you were feeling whatever, all the feels that you would allow yourself to take the day, feel it, digest it. Because if we're just ignoring it, like it's going to pop up in some other way until you finally listen. So, um, like you said, sometimes we kind of just brush things to the side, try to look on the bright side, but yeah, it is so valuable to feel the feels because we have them for a reason, digest yeah. and then kind of like move forward. So, yeah. And I think we confuse, I'll just quickly interject this. I okay. think we confuse emotions or feelings with attitude. And I don't think we actually have control over our emotions. I think they are natural and they are healthy and they are there for a reason. And so why are we trying to um, shun them? or ignore them, or push them away in ourselves or in other people. Now, our attitude, again, like when we're hurting, it's not the time for someone to tell us to have an attitude shift. But I can say that even with all of my health challenges, you know, my goal is to still listen to those birds singing, or, or, you know, make some music or uh, recognize how loving that friend is that just came over for a coffee or whatever. And that's up to me. I mean, I can choose to be stuck in negativity or I can choose to um, take steps to, uh, you know, a healthy, positive attitude. But hey, that doesn't mean I'm not feeling grief or sadness or pain. Uh, and I just think we shouldn't confuse the two. Mm-hmm. Wow. So important. Um, you said back in the conversation that your, one of your doctors was really thankful that you were so in tune with your body so that they could help you, you know, further on, um, your wellness in whatever way they could, but not all doctors feel the same way when approached with information coming from the patient. So can you talk about that too? Cause I know that's something that you're so passionate about. And obviously you wrote a book about it, the 30 mm -hmm. secrets. Um, 
and tips for self-advocacy. And don't we ever need that because we need to advocate for ourselves. So can you talk about kind of that journey and maybe some challenges you faced along the way or some things that you found some of the tips and secrets you found along the way to, to help people along who might be going through that right now? Yeah, for sure. And I will just interject quickly to say that um, it's now called 31 secrets and tips instead of 30 because I added one. And so there you go. It's a bonus tip actually in the book that that I didn't want to leave out. So since we originally talked, the title has changed, but regardless, um, the rest of it is the same. It's still a book full of secrets and tips and stories actually. Um, And so, yes, here's the thing. We enter the healthcare systems. Now I can speak for Canada and the UK more directly, but I think most of what I have to say, it doesn't really matter where you are. We enter the healthcare systems with a problem and we're, we're looking for our doctors to solve that problem for us. And the doctor knows it's their job to solve that problem for us. The, the problem that, that comes with that is that their hands are tied with time because the systems dictate how much time they get with a patient. So they're on very tight schedules are often running behind. um, And they are just trying to be the most efficient as possible to, to problem solve and then get the job done and get some kind of treatment sorted. And I have learned that that can feel like, that you are just a number at the doctor's office and that you, you, you aren't really seen as a person, uh, as a person, pardon me. And I've also learned that I have the power to change that perspective uh, on their part. And when we see the doctors as humans and not just a white coat, they can start to see us also as humans. And so, um, First of all, I think there are practical tips that I've included in the book, such as show up on time. Now, that seems like such a basic, everybody knows when you have an appointment, you should show up on time. But some people have the attitude, well, why should I? The doctors are always running late and I sit there for half an hour before my appointment anyways. Let me tell you why. Here's one of the secrets. Their assistants are watching. I actually had a doctor tell me once that Um, their assistant, who's the gatekeeper of all of the appointments, will be more apt to fit you in on short notice if they know that you are someone who shows up on time or or even a bit early, minus COVID times, um, and you don't cancel for no reason or just not show up. If if you do your part, they are paying attention. Um, But so there's there's it's layered with tips such as that um i carry a document with me that has all of my current medications it's got a list of my physicians that i see regularly and it has the highlights of my medical history and that is in my handbag when i go to a new doctor they say to me every 100% of the time they will say are you on any medication i slam down my document and they their eyes light up because they're like whoa I don't have to sit here, wait for you to try to remember what you're on, your doses, make notes. They say to me, can I keep that? Absolutely, you can keep that. I'll print off another one. So they look it over quick. It's right there. They'll make their notes after. And here's the thing. We've just saved three minutes of that precious 10 or 15 minutes to get to the heart of the problem. So so I give practical tips like that, that let me tell you, gain respect in your doctor's eyes. And they will start to see you differently if you're doing your part. If you're coming well prepared um, as far as research, um, but another tip, if you frame your thoughts as questions rather than, I read on the internet, so I think I have this. Well, I'm so careful to always say like, yeah, sure, admit it. They know we're going on the internet. Like in this day and age, they're not idiots. But I will say, you know, I... um, I, I read this or I'm feeling this or last time we tried that. Uh, what if, or should we maybe be testing for, do you think that would be helpful? Frame your thoughts as questions. So there's those practical tips, but on the personal level, there's a lot we can do to set the tone for that appointment. 
if you walk in and say, hi, Dr. Jones, I notice you're running behind. I hope you're not too stressed out. Or how is your day going? Again, let me tell you, they, the look on their faces is just like, whoa, you understand this is stressful for me too. And let's remember that they have families, they get cancer diagnoses, they have stresses, they've got to get to pick up their kids from their, you know, football games or whatever, and they're running behind. They're human too. So when we recognize that and and see them that way, I'm not saying pry into their personal life, but these simple little things, uh, thank you goes a long way. I just had a situation where I was suspicious of a UTI, urinary tract infection. And I wasn't 100% convinced and she wasn't 100% convinced, but she said, let's take a sample. It'll take a week for the results to come back, but I'm going to give you antibiotics because she trusts me and she knows already that I know my body. I know what's going on. She said, I'm going to give you antibiotics today. If your symptoms get worse, start taking them. Guess what happened? The next day, fever, chills, nausea, pain, all of it. I had a raging infection that could have put me in the hospital. I had the antibiotics already. You know what I did? And this is not to brag. This is just something I've learned that makes a difference. I meant it. I sent her a thank you card. I dropped it off and I said, thank you for being so proactive. I saved you an appointment and it saved you an appointment and me an appointment. And I, the fact that she trusted me with that was so important. So yes, I'm passionate about, um, we can't always make our doctors um, care. I've had to break up with one or two over my years, but I can honestly say that I generally have an awesome team and they see me, they hear me, they really do care. So I know it can happen for you too. So yes, that that's another passion that I have, you might notice. Uh, <laughs> I get a little fired up because I think so many people feel scared, they feel powerless, they feel frustrated, and it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Mm, so good. Yeah. And I love like, yeah, you can break up with your doctor, you're not stuck with them mm. if you're feeling like the relationship isn't going well, but then to like humanize these people who obviously are there for a reason. They care about people. They're wanting to help you. They wouldn't be there if they weren't. And it is stressful and the time it's a time crunch sometimes. So those little tips that you gave, I think can even help. Yeah. Like you said, set the tone and change the relationship. So it feels good and the time is maximized and you feel like a person and they feel like a person mm. because don't we know the connection feeling seen and yeah respecting each other is definitely um you can feel that and yeah absolutely oh. and now i know if i say hey i think my iron levels are tanking again do you think we could test um test my iron they they do the test there's no question because they they know that I know what that feels like. It's been low before. Yes, they care. So they're willing to do that and give me an iron infusion if I need it again or whatever. Um, I will say I do I do touch on breaking up with the doctor in the book. And I've layered stories throughout that kind of reinforce um the tips. Um, not all of the tips, but but some of them to show to show them in action. And I also have a couple where, you know, it's what I wish I would have done and how I I, you know. I uh, complained about something inconsequential. And why would I do that? Like, it's not the doctor's fault that they're now charging for parking. Like, that's ridiculous. Why did I do that? So I've layered it with stories, but they do touch on breaking up with your doctor and how to complain wisely. Because there is legitimate times when we need to complain um, because things have gone wrong or things need to change. And there's a way to do that will, that will get you the desired result. When we go in, you know, quote unquote, guns blazing, um, you're probably not going to get the desired result. They they aren't going to, you know, care more for you if, if you've, you know, go in there with that negative attitude. So, um, you know, it touches on a bunch of those things. And, and like I said, has, has some entertaining stories to, to show you what that can look like. I love it. Oh my gosh. And that just brings me back to like a couple little stories, like as a teacher, when parents come at me guns blazing, it's, it's not helpful at all. When they come in with questions and curiosities and, 
a willingness to work together and see each other out in different perspectives and have conversations game changer. And when, um, somebody had said to me once something about my cell phone bill and they said, well, why don't you call them and just be ignorant and be like, can I speak to your manager? And I'm like, if somebody calls me and speaks to me that way, I completely lose respect for them. So why wouldn't I call and say, Hey, I've got, um, I'm wondering if you have any other options. Is there a way we can do this? And be kind about it because kindness goes a long way. And I feel like people feel like they have to, to come in guns blazing to get a result. And it trusts me, like the results will be a thousand times better if you can do it with kindness. And I love how you add these little tips in for people to think about, because yeah, you said there's a time to complain in, in a, in a way that is going to work for you, but that little bit of kindness, if somebody can bend things a little bit, if somebody could go the extra mile for you, they're Mm. not going to do it. If your approach is, you know, fire from the beginning, but if you can walk in and show a little bit of kindness, when they have that ability, they will do that for you. So I just love how you bring that up because I think a lot of us need to reevaluate how we're approaching, you know, situations, not just in the doctor, but in life, because the approach definitely will, will lead the path in so many different ways and in a different positive way. I did an interview. I, I gave an interview. I interviewed, (laughs) here we go. Um, an ER nurse, uh, it's actually on YouTube, um, under medical mistress. Anyway, uh, that was not meant to be a plug. I'm just saying I interviewed an ER nurse who said that very thing. She said, if someone who I can see is in the waiting room and they are, they are kind to me, they are being patient. They aren't complaining. They're not, you know, bullying me or pushing me around as a nurse. I'm more likely to go get them a drink on my lunch break or, you know, go that extra mile um, and sacrifice, you know, her own time to help that person out. than if someone has come in, you know, angry and whatever, and she knows, I mean, it's a stressful place in the ER. And she, she, I think is pretty good at weeding out what is, you know, stress from the situation, you think you're having a heart attack and whatever, versus like, you know, you know, perhaps it's someone that is looking for a fix or whatever it might be. The the amount of abuse that nurses go through in that setting, let me tell you, it's atrocious. But it's just another example of that. You know what? It, when we are genuinely kind, like it's good, people. It's good for all of us. I feel great after sending that thank you card as well as the doctor, I'm sure. So yeah, let's just, let's be kind about it. But sometimes we have to be firm in our kindness. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I there's some examples of that in the book as well. On Like, yeah, I had to stand my ground, but hopefully I did it in a respectful way. And uh, I did get some awesome results from it. So Awesome. Okay. And so what inspired you then? Cause you have this book that I think is going to be so beneficial to so many people kind of going through, uh, their journey of life, um, that they can apply to get a different results. But then you also now have a memoir that's coming out really soon. So what inspired you to write that? Well, <laughs> so yeah, help the doctor help you was, you know, I, I just felt like I have this, you know, whole wealth of experience that can help other people. Plus, family members and friends, you know, they, so many of them say, well, the doctor said, so I guess I have to, and you fill in the blanks or like, oh, I, I didn't think to ask what happens next. I don't know when that test result will come back or whatever. And I thought, oh man, it doesn't have to be this way. Like you can, you can be more empowered. So that inspired that book and the memoir, um, it's in the editing process and not scheduled for release yet, but stay tuned. It is about my chronic illness and it is about that idea of, um, you know, how we communicate with people in hard times and, you know, it touches on the negative positivity. Um, but I just felt like, first of all, I have people multiple times over and over say, like, you should write a book. And 
uh, yeah, it's just a story that lends itself to perhaps having a place in the world because there, you know, it, it's so ridiculous in some ways, but also I think that, um, I think generally, I'm sure I don't hit the mark all the time, but I think generally for whatever reason, I am honest about the hardness of life, but also can recognize the beauty and not always all at the same time. Um, Sometimes it just feels hard or sometimes it's like, wow, what an awesome day. This is great. Like, you know, my health's pretty stable and whatever, but I, I just, I feel like, um, I feel like perhaps my voice might encourage other people. I, I mean, yeah, just the feedback that I get from others online or, or whatever s- speaks to that. And so as a writer, I mean, I, I have multiple writing projects on the go and I'm a published author and write a column called Expert Patient Here to Help in some community newspapers back in Canada. So I'm actively writing anyway. So a memoir just made sense um, sense for me. So hopefully uh, it will, you know, resonate with, with some people and they'll see f- feel seen and heard because of it. I love that. Okay. So I love how you mentioned like there's hard days, but then there's also the beauty. Like you can have both. Mm. You don't have to be all in positive. You don't have to be all in hard. Like there's both, right? That's right. Um, Yeah. So I want you to just to kind of touch on what are some of your passions that just really light you up or light a fire Mm. inside of you? I see there's two keyboards behind you and I know you like reference music. So what are some of those things that just add that beauty to your life? Well, I would say, so three things. Oh, well, no, not just three things, but we'll touch on three things. First of all, the writing does really bring me life and energy. And my favorite thing to do is to go to a coffee shop and silently suck up everybody else's energy (laughs) and put it into my writing. Um, And it's therapeutic for me. And uh, so I really enjoy that process. Secondly, yes, I am a musician. I've been playing the piano since I was four or five years old and we realized along the way that I more naturally play by ear and so we ended up you know changing the lessons from the more classical um note notes in front of you kind of driven lessons to thankfully I my last piano teacher was a, a concert pianist and she saw that potential in me to play by ear um and she's like why don't we develop that and I'm so thankful for that because when I found out that I had stage four retinopathy, as I mentioned, it was a really hard, hard time in life, but it, it struck me that I play the piano by ear. I don't need my sight to make music. And that's when I started composing and writing songs. And so for many years, I just wrote for my own sake. I um, would, you know, have singers sing them. Um, but I would just make, you know, amateur recordings just to, just to have them. It was more about the process and, you know, uh, just, uh, I wanted to bring a song to completion, but I never tried to put them out in the world. But in the last few years, um, I've gotten more serious about the music. And so I actually have two artists profiles out there, uh, anywhere where there's music, Apple, Spotify, whatever. And my artist name, Susie Bird, is um, I reserve that for the songs that I sing. And it took me a long time to, I'm still not comfortable with my singing voice, but I have others encourage me that some songs lend themselves to me singing them because I interpret them as I feel them and as I, as they're meant to be. And so I, I, um, I have some songs there that I sing and then Sushwa, uh, I have s- instrumentals and songs with other people's vocals on them um, that are also meaningful to me. But, you know, um, Erin, who has sung three of them, like I just can't do with my voice what she can do. And those songs needed her voice. So that's what we did. So I'm passionate about making music and, um, you know, hopefully it lands out there again in the world with people who it resonates with. Um, my Susie Bird stuff, is a very contemplative generally. And um, one of the songs I'll just highlight, it's lonely here. 
I actually wrote from one of those iron infusion experiences. They do iron infusions in the chemo department. And let me tell you, sitting in that chair surrounded by chemo patients, getting their chemo, A, feeling like an absolute fraud because I was literally getting liquid energy. Um, B, it threw me back to my nephew who he's now eight turning nine and he's, he's doing great, but wasn't meant to survive. And that was pretty traumatic when he was two and a half to have that brain tumor and all that went along with that. Um, but also then I, I had to work through the fact that, well, I, I am no stranger to illness and, you know, I've had to deal with difficult things as well. And so maybe I'm not so fraudulent sitting there. And that's how It's Lonely Here came to be. So if you listen to the song, it'll maybe make a bit more, you know, it'll make sense to you where it came from. Um, just, yeah, the main line is It's Lonely Here Surrounded by Sickness Peers. And so it was it was just one of those pivotal moments in life that uh i had to go to my piano i sat down i wrote it in a couple of hours and um i it's just one of my most meaningful songs and then also i discovered once moving to england um uh, photography as an amateur but we've done more travel and that has you know looking through a camera lens has really opened my eyes to the beauty around me because for a while I was obsessive about finding the shot, finding the shot. But then now I've come to realize it doesn't always have to be through the camera lens. Just look for the beauty around you. But had I not gone through that process of taking all those pictures, which I still love to do, but I now put the camera down as well. I don't think I would have um, taken as much notice of what was happening around me in the world and just really reveling in the moment that you're in and the beauty that surrounds you. So yeah, those things light me up. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Okay. Well, lastly, where can everybody find you, connect with you, grab a copy of your book? Okay. So the book comes out April 18th, Tuesday. So that's very close to now. It will be on Amazon, wherever you are. Um, so you can find it there. You can, I'm most active on Instagram. So my medical mistress um, page is where I focus mostly on, you know, the chronic illness side of things and the negative positivity and all of that. Um, and the link will be, I'm sure in the show notes, you can yeah. find it there. Um, and Susie.Sushwa, S-U-S-C-H-W-A, is where you can find my music. So if you want to go there, I've got link trees in both those accounts. So that takes you to everything. Um, my website, if you're interested on the health side, is lesshealthstress.com. And um, I also have a music website, sushwamusic.com. And if you want a short weekly email um, of support, you can find it in any of my links or my website or whatever. And it's called Convos with Carlos. He is my little chihuahua. And uh, yeah, he hears it all, people. But um, anyways, I it's called Convos with Carlos. One care, one quote, one question. And it's just short. Every Friday it comes out and you can follow along there. And you'll get inside my brain, but hopefully also, you know, it'll be a bit thought provoking as well. So th those are the best places to to find me and follow along. Okay. Amazing. We'll link that all in the show notes. Um, everybody, after you saying that I'm like, needs a therapy dog. I journal a lot. Maybe I should just <laughs> sit down with my two dogs and talk life out with them because yeah, wouldn't they ever listen and they can just keep things to themselves. And yeah, that's right. And you know, their cuddles are fantastic, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I feel like I'm going to grow and evolve from this conversation and mm. reframe things and think about things a little differently um, because I'm such an optimistic person and I'm always looking for the positivity, but I do understand that you can have the beauty and the hard together, but just mm. having that language and just thinking about the little shift that, that I can make, I think is going to be so beneficial in my life. So I just know, you know, our listeners are going to love everything that you've brought to the table before today. And yeah, so thank you so much for sharing your story. It's, it's a beautiful one. And I love to see how, even though, you know, things have been hard, you mm -hmm. still have so much beautiful, 
um, things going on in your life. So thank you so much. Oh, it's honestly from the bottom of my heart been an honor to be here. And uh, thank you for just giving me a place to get passionate about my passions. Honestly, I love it. Love it. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of All Things Relatable. If you know someone that would relate to this episode and get value from it, please pass it along. Also, if this episode resonated with you, I would love for you to rate, review, and subscribe.